if you get to someone and they're like, oh my gosh, I've been out here three days, thank you so much, and they start to just lose it, then you can't get them to safety. The emotional reaction can make them go into physical shock. America's national parks are stunning, but they can also be dangerous. They draw millions of visitors in every year, but some never come back out. The number of people that go missing, sometimes without a trace, has led to speculation that maybe something sinister is going on, something peculiar down in the woods. Abductions, time portals, Bigfoot even. Every year, 3,000 people go missing, Some of them will never be found. Roughly 150 will die. Many have to be rescued by the selfless and tireless efforts of search and rescue volunteers. Jennifer Lois was one of those volunteers. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, edge work. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the early 1990s, Jen was a postgrad student at Colorado University, trying to figure out what her PhD thesis should be. I thought maybe altruism originally. Altruism is a topic that baffles scientists and even had Darwin scratching his head. Risking or even sacrificing your life for someone else, someone you don't even know, why would you do it? When Jen was a young student, she felt that much of the research on the subject was mediocre at best. In her opinion, the experiments didn't relate enough to real life. There is a sociology of altruism, but I don't know. A lot of it's like, we had someone walk across campus and drop a big stack of envelopes and counted how many people helped them. And I was like, that's less interesting to me as a measure of altruism than being with real people in a real situation. What fascinated Jen more was the minutia of an extraordinarily benevolent act, such as risking your own life to save others. What type of people choose to do that? And what makes them good at it? A friend said, I know what you should study. You should study search and rescue. And I said, what's that? I have no idea what's sociological about it, but I just thought it was interesting. Jen soon came across the Mountain Rescue Association, an international organization that runs volunteer groups performing backcountry search and rescue. And there was one right on her doorstep in Colorado. It was voluntary, so I thought, I'll just show up. Got there and we had to fill out these forms, like rate yourself on one to 10 on the following skills. 
avalanche rescue, winter survival, ice climbing, white water, kayaking. And I was like um, five on hiking and like <laughs> everything else was like zero, 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 zero. My first introduction to what I'd gotten myself into. <laughs> One of the first people Jen met in the organization was Tim. Tim was the first person I talked to in the group. He happened to be in the office and answer the phone. Tim was a senior member of the team, and as an emergency medical technician and experienced backcountry guide, was one of the most proficient. An expert in decision-making under stress and equipped with all the necessary skills to negotiate the treacherous mountain environment. In many ways, he was the perfect subject for Jen to study. Jen had to be honest about her reasons for joining the group. But the way Tim saw it, as long as she was 100% in, he was all for it. She quickly became part of the team. Jen actually learned amazingly well and amazingly quickly and was a very strong rescue member. Nobody thought of her as a researcher. I do often joke about, oh, I was a rat in a maze, but I never thought about her as someone studying us. She was truly a rescue member because she was out there in the middle of the night looking for people. The Rocky Mountains are America's largest mountain range. Concentrating on a small section of it, just west of Denver, year after year, Jen ventured out with Tim and other volunteers on countless search and rescue missions. They searched for lost hikers, people with broken legs, plane crash victims. The more rescues Jen participated in, the more it became clear. Being a good rescuer is not just about your physical fitness. Sure, it helps, but another important facet is your mind. Jen used the term edge work to encapsulate the idea. That is a term that was introduced to sociology by Stephen Ling. He's a sociologist and he studied skydivers. And he borrowed the term from Hunter S. Thompson, who talked about riding motorcycles at death-defying sort of right at the edge of life and death. And so when Stephen Ling introduced it into sociology, he said, this is what people are seeking when they are skydiving, where you want to be right on the edge of life and death, chaos and order, danger and safety, staying in control right on the edge of danger. That's the source of the rush for a lot of people and the source of feelings of self-efficacy and empowerment and that kind of thing. Jen took this and applied it to search and rescue volunteers. It was a novel idea. Stephen Ling applied it to physicality. I applied it to emotions. Because if you lose emotional control, you can't think rationally, you can't be dependent on your danger. The most valuable rescuer is the one that totally knows their limits. What you don't want is anyone who is only in it for the adrenaline rush. You don't want those people because they're going to do things that may endanger you or the team or the person that's out there that's asking for help. And there was periodically people that we had to ask, you know, say, this isn't for you because there were too much in it for the adrenaline and the thrill, not enough in for the person. Of all the rescues that Jen and Tim took part in, there was one, one bit of edge work that still stays with them for a multitude of reasons. It began one dark Sunday morning in November of 1999. I think it was like six in the morning and a page went off. 
This is in the days before cell phones, so we carry these big bulky pagers. Report to base, it would often say. And then just whoever got the tones available would go. So we just got up and got our stuff and got in the car. Tim had only just arrived home from a rescue from the night before and was unpacking his gear when his pager went off. Typically, when tones go out, it's literally just report to base for a search for a lost hiker in a particular area. The area that day was a vast stretch of backcountry to the west of Denver, Colorado, on the slopes of a 14,000-foot mountain. We're talking 100 square miles, and it's deep in the wilderness, so there's no motorized vehicles allowed. It is a true wilderness area. In those parts, the weather can turn on a dime. Nighttime temps are well below freezing and can often yield a good foot or more of snow. Terrain-wise, we're like very high alpine terrain. We start out in treeline, traveling up thousands of feet, and then we break above treeline, and then it's what we call scree fields. Those scree fields are also peppered with huge, treacherous boulders. None of those boulders are locked together. There's like these big three foot, 10 foot drops in between these giant boulders. And so you have to go from one boulder over a giant gap to another boulder. They're all like loosely piled. It's like if you dumped out Jenga pieces or something like that. It's especially treacherous when covered in snow. Anytime you have snowfall on a scree field, this big boulder field, if you slip, very easily break a leg, break whatever. Um, We have had people who have fallen and broken both their legs. And so they're completely immobile, can't do anything. The most dangerous thing is how easy it is to seemingly vanish into thin air. The sheer number of people that go missing in national parks has led some to speculate that something peculiar is happening in the American wilderness. From Bigfoot to time portals and even alien abductions, many outlandish theories have been put forward to account for the mysterious disappearances. The simple truth is, it's just plain easy to get lost. When people leave their car, they set out on the trail in treeline, they come out of the treeline, and then there's no trail. So what people do is generally they just head up the mountain because they can see the top. People don't usually get lost on the way up. One trick that I do and teach to help you from getting lost in the woods is something I call sign tracking. Sign tracking is essentially picking macro and micro terrain features that you know aren't going to disappear anytime soon. Ideally, you should look to focus on big terrain features like distinct mountain peaks, hard bends in a river, or unusual or distinctive trees that you can use as physical identifiers to get you from point A to B and back again. What you're doing essentially is creating a mental map in your head of all those macro and micro terrain features that will hopefully keep you from getting lost. On the way down, if they can't find that trail again, that's when they go the wrong way down into that valley. Losing the path is all it takes, and even experienced hikers can sometimes get into trouble. A few wrong turns and your mind can very quickly play tricks on you. Suddenly, every direction looks the same. And before you know it, you can be miles from where you thought you were. Oh, I want to go look at that peak over there. And all of a sudden, 
they're 10 miles away. Tim and Jen are among eight volunteers who arrive that morning at the rescue organization's headquarters, where they are quickly briefed on the situation. Two nights before, the missing person, Bill Brown, called into the local sheriff's office at 5 p.m. to say he was lost. The sheriff then patched him through to the search and rescue office. So he was able to talk to the person and try to get some information from him and where are you, what do you see, and try to help guide him kind of back to where he was supposed to be, get some information about where he was. He was going to try to continue walking with the new directions that he had. Then he ran out of cell phone battery and lost contact. After that initial contact, Bill was expected to return home that night. But by the following morning, his car was still parked up at the trailhead. In response, two volunteers were immediately dispatched and sent up the mountain to locate him, but failed to find anything. By 5 a.m. on that Sunday, 36 hours after he first phoned the police, Bill is still missing. The weather has also turned for the worse. We had a light snowfall, temperatures were really cold. So our main fear was if he had fallen and gotten hurt and he was now immobile or just pure hypothermia. It was so cold at night. And then with the snowfall, once you get wet, it's really dangerous. After their briefing, the rescue volunteers are separated into teams of two and given instructions on where to go. Jen and her partner set off on foot up into the mountain, while the more experienced members of the group, Tim and his search partner, Cody, take a helicopter straight to the top. There's a log book up there that accounts for all the visitors who made it to the top, if they make it that far. Tim and Cody's first task is to go up and see if Bill has written his name in it. But the plan changes when they spot a different possible clue. So we got about halfway up the scree field, which is maybe half a mile. And we saw one set of footprints. And we're like, okay. Tim and Cody relay the size and pattern of the prints to the local police. They're confirmed as a match for the type of shoes Bill went missing in. So we thought, this is our guy. This is the person we're looking for. We started following footprints and they kind of went all over the place. And then we started losing footprints just due to snow. And we just kind of lost our trail up top. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. A short time later, Tim and Cody find another set of footprints, this time heading down into the valley toward a freezing river. 
Oddly, with a clearly visible bridge only 20 feet away, the footprints disappeared at the edge of the river, only to reappear on the other side of the water, heading back up into the trees. That was a really curious piece because we thought, why wouldn't you just cross a bridge and walk down the trail? You found a trail. Why wouldn't you walk down it? Like, what is this person doing? Are they trying to find their way down? It doesn't make sense. Tim knows something is very wrong. Anytime you're out in the field and something doesn't make sense, you have to pay attention to it. And it could be a head injury, could be hypothermia. When you start to get really cold, your brain doesn't work how it's supposed to. And so that really amps up the urgency of everything. And now you've just added to it. He walked through an ice cold river, 20 feet from a bridge. Now he's wet. It just doesn't make sense. Tim and Cody stay put while the other teams home in on where the footprints are heading. So Tim and Cody are on this 14,000 foot mountain. My person and I were like, let's say to the left of that. And then to the right of that is where people kind of end up in the wrong place. And so the footprints were sort of heading down to the right. And there's a big creek in that valley. And so another team was sent up along that creek in the valley. One of the team brought their search dog with them and an air horn. He sounds it off in the trees, hoping the missing man will hear it. Usually you spend the whole day either shouting the person's name or blowing a whistle so you don't lose your voice or whatever. But he said, this is even better. I'm going to blow my boat air horn every so often. And so they were coming up and he was just periodically blowing this air horn. Suddenly, the dog starts barking. Then, from somewhere, they hear a voice. But it's strange. The voice seems to be coming from all around them, and it's hard to make out. They can't even be sure it's Bill's. It was tricky because if Tim and Cody were on the mountain, and I'm on the left, and people go down to the right to hit that trail, the voice was coming from across the river, across the trail, up on the other side, farther to the right. Sound goes all over the place. And sometimes it's really difficult to locate exactly where a sound is coming from. They thought they were talking to him for a little bit. They were like, yeah, it's him. And then they're like, well, I don't think it's him. And so there was this uncertainty. Footprints that don't make sense. A voice they can't find. Out there in the cold and dark, in the ancient wilderness where so many have been lost before, you'd be forgiven for getting a little scared. Times like these, the hairs might stand up on the back of your neck. And those emotions we talked about earlier can threaten to bubble up. But good rescuers just get on with it. The decision is made to bring in the helicopter to help find the man they can hear but not see. But having eyes in the sky gives no guarantees. It's always shocking how tiny it is because you think, here comes the helicopter, I hear it. And you're like, where is it? And it's this tiny speck. And then you think, if that's the size of the helicopter, what's the size of the person we're looking for? It's overwhelming. It's really difficult. 
to find someone from the air. Flying in a helicopter a thousand feet above a forest, it's really hard to spot a person in that forest. And it's not as easy as we often think it is and, and we see in movies. Thankfully, on this occasion, after only a few hours, the helicopter crew get a visual on Bill. So they were able to see him at the base of what they described as a cliff. He was moving, so they didn't think he fell off the cliff. He's mobile. He looks like he's standing. So we think that he is just sitting at the bottom of this cliff face. Once the person in need is found, the rescue enters a new phase. The urgency ramps up and the focus sharpens. Now we have a location. How do we get people there? Bill has spent two nights exposed to the wilderness. He's been through a freezing river, and even though he's alive, he could be deep into hypothermia. Every second counts. Tim and Cody race to meet the helicopter at the first spot it can safely touch down. Literally, the skids touched, we threw our packs in and jumped in, and off we went. No sooner have they gotten the air, Tim is informed by the pilot that the helicopter is dangerously low on fuel. With nightfall fast approaching, it will soon be too dark to fly. If they can't get Bill out now, they will be forced to stay the night in the forest. And who knows what conditions? Me and Cody are talking in the, you know, three minute helicopter ride. <laughs> okay, what, you know, what do you got? Let's try to come up with a plan if we need to stay out here overnight. Tim and Cody rush to work out what they need to take with them. Before long, the helicopter comes in to land. The helicopter was able to get us fairly close probably about 400 meters from about where Bill was. Problem was, he was down a cliff face. And so they got us as close as they could safely, and then they idled down. As the helicopter idles, keeping its fuel use to a minimum, Tim and Cody rush out to tend to Bill. The cliff face was a fairly sheer cliff face for a couple hundred meters. As we're running down the sides, we were able to find a little gully down the cliff face that was just gentle enough that we could get down it safely without ropes. With the search for Bill complete, this now marks another phase of the rescue. To get to Bill will mean having to put their own safety at risk. Tim and Cody are now performing edge work, the moment when they'll be right at the edge of their capabilities. An emotional control is vital. Yeah, and so this is where being able to check your emotions and understand your emotions and how you're feeling is really important because as you're moving through this, you don't want to just be running willy-nilly doing something dumb that gets you hurt, but you need to move quickly. For rescuers, this is the key moment when all their training and experience comes to the fore. It's a crucial balance knowing what you have to do, but being clear-headed enough not to push anything too far, or else you might mess things up or put your own and your teammates' lives in danger. I don't know really how to describe what that's like, but it is a place where you are with 
your confidence in your physical ability, knowing what you can do physically. And there's also an has to be an open line of communication between you and your teammate. Cody and I knew each other fairly well. We were able to um, communicate honestly and very quickly as to what our comfort level was. You are doing this risk reward constantly. The rescuer never wants to become the rescued. You never want to hurt yourself, which then puts more people in danger. Tim and Cody make it down to Bill, but what they find is deeply troubling. Me and Cody had talked a little bit that this person probably is not going to be in the greatest shape. It was actually worse than we had expected. He didn't have a pack. His clothes were torn. He was soaking wet severely hypothermic. He was disoriented and in pretty rough shape. He had running tights on, but nothing on top of the running tights. And those were torn and ripped from scooting on his butt on the rocks. He had been out two nights, to be clear. It was bad. You could just tell right away, mental faculties were not 100%. He was not thinking straight. His nail beds were blue. So he was very, very cold. They have to find a way to get Bill up to the helicopter as fast as possible. But there's another problem. We're talking to him, you know, who are you? And, and he told us who he was. And we had said, okay, you're coming with us. And he was like, I, I can't see. I don't know where to go. We were like, well, what do you mean? And that's when he told us, I lost my glasses. I'm legally blind it all starts to make sense. Why his footsteps were going round in circles, up and down, and doubling back on themselves, and why he'd walk through a freezing river when a bridge was only 20 feet away. Bill Brown didn't see that gully himself and couldn't get himself out because he had lost his glasses and he was legally blind without them, which is something that they didn't know until they got to him. Tim knew that Bill could not survive another night in the forest, but worse is to come. Counterintuitively, this moment of first contact between the rescuer and the person who needs rescuing can often be the most dangerous part of the rescue and can test even the most experienced of rescuers. Rescuers not only had to control their own emotions and know the edge, they had to control the victim's ability to stay in emotional control too. If you get to someone and they're like, oh my gosh, I've been out here three days, thank you so much, and they start to just lose it, then you can't get them to safety. The emotional reaction can make them go into physical shock. Shock. And that's when they start to decompensate and all of their physiological defenses that have been keeping them going, keeping them alive, all shut down. And they all say, we're done, we're good, you know, we're saved all your blood vessels dilate, get really big. And so your blood pressure gets really low. And when these things start to happen, that's when people can have cardiac arrest. You can lose consciousness. It puts enormous amounts of stress on your heart. This is exactly what happens to Bill. Started going into shock, couldn't stand up, was really disoriented. When people get shocky, you lay them on the floor and put their feet up to try to get lots of blood to their brain. Then, a call comes through on the radio. 
we then get a call from the helicopter saying, we're out of fuel. You have a couple of minutes to get back. Whether you're here or not, we're leaving. Tim and Cody have to formulate a plan and fast. I don't think he has another night in him. We could get a fire going, we do all sorts of things, but we can't keep him warm here. Someone who's very hypothermic, you can't just warm them up with a fire. It's not enough. They need medical attention to do that. And when you start warming someone who's really cold, it can also shock their system and cause heart problems. I was not confident that I had the skills to take care of him in the condition he was in. There's no time to set up a rope system with the helicopter and extract Bill. Daylight is fading fast. Soon the weather will turn once again, and it will get extremely cold. There's no way to get Bill down, and there is no chance they can carry him up the cliff. If he is going to survive, Bill will need to walk himself back up. In the condition he was in, he was not going to walk up that gully without a little bit of help. Tim and Cody need to get Bill's emotions under control in whatever way they can to force him to help himself. We had to start yelling at him. (laughs) Um, We had to get him scared. We had to get him angry. We had to get him anything we could get a response from him. This tactic is something we do in the military. We've employed this mechanism, this idea of fight or flight by forms of motivation. You're not belittling someone. You're saying, look, you're a Marine. You can do this. Get up. Keep running. You've got to carry this pack. you got to drag this person from a Humvee. You can't quit. This is a tactic that, when employed in the right situation, is looking to get the emotional response, whether it's anger, frustration, or fear, to get the blood moving, the heart pumping, and really trigger the fight or flight mechanism. As Bill is going to have to fight his way back up the cliff. So that's what we did. We started yelling at him, mean as I could be, telling him to get up, in his face, yelling at him. You're going to die out here if you don't get on your feet. This kind of ultra-tough love is a last resort, and though it might sound harsh, can be the difference between life and death. You could see the change. You could see him perk up. His body kind of went tense again from being completely relaxed. His body kind of went tense, and that's when we knew, okay, we got him. We have a couple of minutes, and that's it, and he's done. We hustled him over to the gully, I went up and he put his hands on the back of my feet and he just followed me up. So one of the reasons he had to hold on to Tim's feet to get out of the gully was because he couldn't see he couldn't see where he was going. So not only did they have this decompensating, in shock, hypothermic victim who can barely walk, he also can't see. So that was another complicating factor. Cody was behind him, putting his feet where they were supposed to be, all yelling at him the whole time just trying to get him going. They reached the top of the cliff face just in time. With his last burst of energy, he collapses in a heap, utterly spent. Tim and Cody will now have to carry him the rest of the way. So he was a big boy, and Cody got him uh, 20, 30 meters. It's like, nope, I'm done. I grabbed him, picked him up, and literally put him in the back of the helicopter. And the pilot was like, good timing. We're leaving right now. And they took off. 
in the helicopter, Tim and Cody do what they can to stabilize Bill and prevent him from going back into shock. They wrap him in a thermal blanket for warmth and raise his feet to keep the blood flowing to his head. They give him oxygen and start a line of ringers, an electrolyte solution delivered intravenously to stop his blood pressure from dropping. He was still fairly fragile. He was still very cold and his body temperature was still low enough. He was not shivering, so he was very hypothermic. Did they get to him in time? They hope so. We were pretty sure we were going to be able to hand him off and he was going to be okay, but um, we didn't, weren't taking anything for granted at that point. And elsewhere, it's not over yet. No rescue can be considered a success until all the team has returned safely. The mission's not over till everyone is back to base. And that truly is how you feel. Cody and I weren't high-fiving each other. Um, you feel good for your, your patient. You hand them off, there's definitely a sense of relief there, um, but there's still more parts. If you still have teams in the field, someone needs you, nothing's over until your whole team is out of the field and safe. You're the first person that's gonna go get him. Thankfully, Bill was safely delivered to the nearest hospital and made a full recovery. All search and rescue volunteers returned home later that day. Only then did they finally have an explanation for what had happened. After he was safe and they got to talk to him more, it turns out that first night when he called and was lost, after he hung up, he slipped on a rock, hit his head so he got disoriented, lost his backpack, lost his phone, lost his glasses. And so by the time he's got his wits about him, he had wandered away from all of his gear and also couldn't see. So that's why he started walking down a hill and crossed a river 20 feet from a bridge. Why he crossed over the trail, he didn't see it. And he felt more comfortable going up than going down because he didn't want to walk off a cliff, which is why he ended up on the wrong mountain on a cliffside. With the rescue complete, a whole other phase of the process kicks in. And that's when you can start to decompress and think about things and be like, well, that was crazy. Can you believe that just happened? <laughs> so, This marks the final stage of a rescue, the aftermath. For many rescuers, this can often be the most difficult part of the job. Finding ways to manage it are crucial. After everyone's out of the field and everything's over, that's when it all keeps hitting you. This was the 90s. There wasn't a lot of awareness about trauma responses or trauma-informed counseling or things like that. That was the beginning stages, I think. And for a volunteer organization, we weren't tapped into that to the degree that I think they would be today. You know, a lot of the PTSD awareness of that time was morphed from shell shock. These are Vietnam veterans having PTSD. I mean, I guess the 91 Gulf War had happened, but we just still didn't have the awareness. Like many organizations of that time, the coping mechanism was grab a beer. For some people, they probably could have benefited from a more formal process that we would have today, for sure. You know, it's all volunteer, and it's a lot to ask people, hey, come to a meeting. Um, it was a lot easier to say, come to the bar. And 
<laughs> and, you know, have a few beers. That's where we did a lot of debriefing as a group. There can often be an enormous sense of satisfaction that comes from a successful rescue. You know, you kind of sit back at some point and really think, oh yeah, I did that. Somebody went home to a family because we were there. And if we weren't there, they would not have went home to that family. And that feels pretty damn good when you are able to say that you had an integral part of sending someone home to their family. It feels really good. In that search area where we were, we didn't always have positive outcomes. And so it's always great when you have some kind of success story like that. It hits you for a couple of days later. You like be going around, you know, two days later, you're going through your day and all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, I forgot that happened. And it just like blows you away again. And it takes a while for that to come down. It's like the opposite of a PTSD, I guess, where, you know, it hits you for a couple of days. Most of us wouldn't hesitate to call search and rescue volunteers, or anyone for that matter, working in the field, heroes. But for the community itself, the label is a tricky one. Altruism is really a very psychological concept. Psychologists have wondered, like, what makes people help others at the expense of themselves? It's really something that's been studied from a motivational perspective. What explains altruism? Why would we sacrifice our self-interest for other people? In our subculture of search and rescue, there was this downplaying of, you know, you can't take credit for it. You can't feel like you did something good or something like that because then you're being a hero and you're claiming that for yourself. And if you call yourself a hero, that's like the antithesis of being a hero. You know, whenever you see people interviewed on the TV, they're like, I just did what anyone would do. Oh, you know, I didn't think about it. I just ran into the burning building. That's altruism. But then the social response to that is heroism. That's what I was interested in, seeing how people bestow that, how people have to deny taking credit for it, and that's the only way to get it. But you still can't want it, you know? That is 100% correct. It's, it's a hard label. I would totally agree. I am not a hero. I'm just a completely ordinary guy who just happened to like to help people and was lucky enough to be with a group of people that had those same motivations. We were able to help a lot of people, you know, and that, that feels good. Some believe another advantage to being altruistic is that it's considered a highly attractive trait. A number of studies have shown that those who display altruistic characteristics are in fact more likely to be considered an attractive mate. Perhaps it's not so surprising then that after all their time spent working on rescues together, Jen and Tim fell in love. Today, now married with kids, the couple have retired, for now, from the perilous work of search and rescue. We were lucky enough to be able to work together and, um, you know, just over a period of time, just got to be really, really good friends um, and very compatible in a lot of different ways. and. Um, yeah, now, 23 years later, we're <laughs> still together. Well, it's funny because when we were talking in this conversation, I was like, oh, yeah, we were on this saddle listening to the blow-by-blow and this dangerous situation Tim was in. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, was I worried? I don't think I was worried. <laughs> like, today I would be worried. But at the time, I was just like, oh, whatever. He does this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> she just started worrying about me today, so... 
<laughs> In this episode, all names, except those of our contributors, Jen and Tim, were changed to protect anonymity. You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hassabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts.